Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of Primo local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on RFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about what a school wellbeing leader in the UK has done to support mental health and wellbeing in her school. My guest today is Clara Rasmus from Brighton Hill Community School in Hampshire in the UK. Claire is head of the technology faculty there and also manages to be head of pastoral care and head of whole school mental health and well-being. Clara spent the last five years supporting her school to build positive mental health and well-being and has written up her experiences in a book called The Mental Health and Well-Being Handbook for Schools, Transforming Mental Health Support on a Budget. And I know there are a lot of schools out there whose ears have just pricked up when they hear on a budget. Kia ora Claire, we're delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Thank you very much, Denise. It's an honour and a pleasure to be able to share what we do over here. Oh, look, the pleasure is all mine. So, Claire, tell me, um, what made you take on the lead wellbeing role? Because that's, you know, you've already sound like you had a busy enough life. So what made you take it on and what kind of support did you get? And tell us a bit about that. It's interesting because it started five years ago and at that stage there weren't... um, there weren't any posts actually existing, you know, in schools where people were already doing it. And I remember my deputy head at the time, uh, Chris Edwards, who's now actually my head teacher, uh, you know, I, I said to him, I was feeling quite frustrated. I, I, um, I was already the anti-bullying coordinator. I was already the LGBT uh, contact in the school. And I felt like I needed to be doing more um, past really. And um, he said to me, well, how about being the head of mental health and well-being? And I said, oh, it sounds great. What does it involve? <laughs> and he said, I'm not sure, but we, we need, there's a need for it. And we started sitting down and discussing the need. And what had happened was we had had the exams and um, one of our A-level students never, you know, one of our A-grade students never made it into her exam. She had a huge, huge panic attack. Uh, before going into the exam. And um, the warning signs were there um, through year nine, through year 10, but there was absolutely no support for her um, building anxiety, for the panic attacks that she was having. In those days, it was just come on, toughen up and get on with it. And as a result, she didn't get her English grade and she should have got an A. And um, and that was just one story. And I also knew um, being the anti-bullying coordinator and the LGBT contact in the school, um, I had I just had children lining up to talk to me at lunch times, just just wanting to be heard. Um, I'm not a counsellor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. But all I could do was sit and listen. And we realized there was a real need to change the culture in the school, that it wasn't all about grades, and it wasn't about the, getting the grades at the cost of the mental health of our young people, yeah. and that we needed to actually change the whole culture. Um, and also, 
at the, at that time, it was only sort of really me and a few other colleagues in post who were holding the space, listening without judgment, and and supporting these young people. And we realized that actually every teacher was a mental health gatekeeper. Actually, if all of us, or if all eighty members of staff came to the came to the party here, adopted this culture of care of listening of mental well-being of being trained on what the signs are to look out for actually we could be so much more proactive and the key word was preventative we, we could prevent we could prevent that young lady getting to that point where she felt she couldn't go into her english jesus exam so that's the background behind it mm-hmm. um but when i started i honestly didn't know what to do so So how did you work that out i mean you've been there quite a while tell us a bit about what you've actually done and how you worked out what you were going to do at any stage well no well the first thing is i took to twitter and i and i I announced my post on twitter and said help and honestly australia new zealand south africa the states norway people just got in contact with me professionals like yourselves who are you know reading it at at, at, you know academic level um um, people who were doing it in schools around the world and people just started sharing readings with me um and and giving me advice and that was just amazing um in terms of uh, you know where did I start? I, I just read as much as I could. Made contact with people like Dr. Sue Roffey, who I know you know, you know, again, looked at their work, read their work, and, and sort of I started to realize that it, it had to come from leadership. It had to start at the very top. It had to start with our leadership uh, um, team, and it had to start with our staff. So the first thing we did was we – rolled out a research project and we we sent out a survey to our students well we actually did focus groups with our students and we did a staff well-being survey and we started to gather information about the well-being barometer of our school um and you know what were the staff saying what were the staff feeling and um and what were our students saying and what were our students feeling? And in order to conduct the research, I actually used um, the help of a, a, a PhD student, um, Dr. Rita Rebels, who really helped me conduct the focus group and the um, and then the, the survey afterwards so that the, the data we gathered actually was quite credible and accurate. And that threw up an enormous amount of information. And once we got that information, we were able to start. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you had, what, what were the key themes coming out from that survey? So the, it, it, one of the key things is we asked the students, did they know where to go for help, when to go, and who to go to? A simple question. And it just it threw up, the kids didn't. So, and that's because the staff kept on changing, who was the contact, we were kept on moving the, mo- the rooms or the rooms around the school. So one minute it would be in the library, then it would be, no, it will be at the student support centre. And, um, and our times kept on changing. No, sometimes you come before school, sometimes lunchtime. So a simple thing like having um, consistency of uh, same place where you go to every lunchtime, same time every day, and the same group of people that you can expect to see 
every time. Just that consistency of knowing where to go for support, when and who, um, was it was the resulted in the well-being zone being created. So in my current school, we've got hashtag well-being square. In my previous school, it was the well-being zone. And in the well-being zone are a series of little rooms uh, that pop up according to the need of that particular demographic. So in my previous school, it was the anti-bullying room um, uh, and also um, uh, the well-being room was there. Um, and in my current school, we've actually got the freedom to be space, the anti-bullying space, the Q space, which is the quiet room, the YC space, which is for our young carers, and the well-being space. So, you know, this is what the students have said in my current school they want. Wow. Um, this is but so, – and so I presume that um, – that gives you a platform for moving on from then when there's a place that people can come to share, to discuss their issues, to get support. Yes. Um, so one of the things we picked up again from the research is that the students said teachers are always too busy to listen. And um, the teachers, I have, my mum and dad are both working. My, the teachers are too busy to listen. No one cares. Um, so th- this hashtag Wellbeing Square, my current school, is about is it's just about letting the students know from the minute they enter our school, we care. You know, so I feel very safe in England because I know there's a hospital up the road, there's a police station down the other road, um, and I've got various centres I can go to if I have a trouble, you know, if something's troubling me or my family. I feel safe. I might not use them ever. I might only use them once. But I know they're there, therefore I feel safe. And it's using that same kind of concept in the school is by setting up the hashtag Wellbeing Square. Should the students need it to, because they need to talk and they need to feel heard, something particularly troubling them, it's there for them. They might never use it. They might only use it once. They might refer a friend to it, but it's always there. And, and I think the other piece is that because it's there, it sends the message that well-being is valued and important in the school. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, and, and parents these days, when you know, and I think parents always, actually, when you send your child to a school, you want to know that your child will be happy, um, will feel heard, um, will be supported, um, and that, you know, while they're there going through those many, many challenges that they go through, you know, um, through school life, that there will be spaces for them to go and be heard. I mean, another key thing um, about the Wellbeing Square or the Wellbeing Zone is that people need to be trained in it. So that was another thing we then rolled out. So we used Relate, the charity um, here, which is a relationships charity, and they trained the well-being ambassadors and how to listen without judgment, um, you know, and that whole concept of the body language when listening, um, our, our concept of safeguarding, um, when somebody is disclosing something or sharing something, when does it become a safeguarding concern, our safeguarding procedures in our school, um, 
um, what to do if something continues to trouble them. So somebody's shared something and they're feeling particularly troubled by it, how they can be supported as well. So we, we have, we have quite, um, intense training for the wellbeing ambassadors and it's fantastic life skills. It sets them up for life. I wish as a 15 year old I'd had this training. Um, I think it would have made me a much better teacher, parent and wife. And Claire, the Wellbeing Ambassadors, they are, so they're students and staff or just students? Yep, so the students and staff. So we use year 10 students only, so they're 15 year old um, to be trained. Um, we've, we've tried it with slightly younger and it doesn't work. Um, the, the, the year 10s um, need to, you know, they need to be quite mature teenagers. Interestingly enough, when we um, recruit we, they're, they're not the potential head girl or head boy or the prefix. Actually, often the students who become the wellbeing ambassadors are students who have had a journey themselves. So they have a sibling or a parent who is um, living with a mental health challenge. Um, um, they, they themselves have struggled um, and, and often they make the best ambassadors actually because they, they really can, um, uh, you know, feel empathy. And um, tell me, so why, and, and presumably you have good reasons why they were year 10 and not 11, 12, and 13. Well, we only go up to year 11 in most okay. secondary schools. So um, if we had A level students, yes, I would definitely be using them as well. Okay. Um, but we only got to sixteen. Okay, so they are the 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 year before finishing. Yes, so the, the year before finishing the GCSEs, and then um, most schools, not all, you tend to go to a college for your A levels. Some schools have got the A level um, subjects within the secondary. Okay, and then. Of the staff, just, you know, to answer that, um, the government here, Theresa May, the previous prime minister, announced that every secondary school could have free mental health first aid training. So one stop, so that was a government initiative a couple of years ago. Um, so almost every secondary school now has a mental health first aider. Unfortunately, they didn't roll it out for every primary school. Mm. Um, which is a shame because actually we all know the earlier you start with a culture of well-being um, and mental well-being, the better um, it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And now, um, Claire, I know that you are a passionate champion of human rights and encouraging students to speak up and lead. So in addition to the student ambassadors, which is a huge role, um, how else have you included student voice or, or coaching or mentoring in the schools? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a, a huge um um, believer in empowering our young people, um, you know, conscientizing them from a young age. Um, but as we know, they have to find their voice. They have to find their words. So um, what I've done before is um, a group of students, in fact, they were my very first um, anti-bullying ambassadors because I have well-being ambassadors and anti-bullying ambassadors, came to me and they felt they were being homophobically bullied and they felt in my previous school there was a real problem with homophobia. And so I said to them, okay, um, let's investigate it. Um, They were my media students as well. I said, I'm going to teach you how to make a documentary. 
and um, we're going to get permission from the head and we're going to we're going to do an investigative documentary into homophobia in our school. So it was part of the coursework, um, but at the same time, I was getting them to to actually take um, to take ownership of this problem. And so we got permission from the head. He was extremely supportive. He said, if there's a problem in my school, I want to know about it. So, yes, you have my blessing. You know, he said, no, stand left unturned. Do what you need to do. And off they went. And, you know, working with Stonewall, Youth Stonewall, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a LGBT charity over here, um, we, 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 you know, we went and investigated. It was a 10-minute documentary. David Cameron was the Prime Minister at the time. And it was just mind-blowing. You know, they really did pick up. There was a real problem with homophobic language. Um, and then once they'd made their film, we don't just leave it as a piece of coursework. I got them to present assemblies on it, um, go to our local primary schools, you know, on why homophobic language is wrong, you know, you know, what does it mean to somebody who is LGBT or or, or their families are. Um, and um, and they were actually then they then became campaigners, and then what happened is the unions, the teaching unions, picked up on this, and then they invited the students to their national conferences. So we went to the ATL national conference, and they were there speaking. Um, and then next minute, we got a phone call from the House of Commons saying they wanted a, a copy of the video. So there we go. So it's yeah, just a beautiful example of activism, of encouraging. And I mean, this is real empowerment when you're when what you're encouraged to do to deal with a problem leads to a call from the House of Commons and the teachers union. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it is. It is. The students were so proud of what they'd achieved because they had brought about change. Yeah. They had brought about change and they had challenged thinking and they had done it. Yeah. No, it hadn't been done to them or for them. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Fabulous. And so, you know, I know for a lot of schools, it's challenging trying to think about how they engage student voice. And so I know that example will be really inspiring. Um, Another area that I think schools find challenging sometimes is how, how how can they engage parents about their well-being and about their children's well-being? And um, it sounds like you've, you've been able to to come up with something really good there as well. Tell us about what you've done with parents. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. The, the the concept with the parents one is because I'm a parent myself, and I know how difficult yeah. it is. Um, you know, uh, we're faced with loads of challenges. I mean, not least, you know, the gaming, the the, the internet, the Wi-Fi. You know, it just seems to be the you know the, the 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 constant battle that you you find. You know, can everybody come offline and just connect with each other and connect with their neighbours and connect with the community and you know just um, it's okay to not be okay and you know be this incredibly successful person. Um, so I realised it was a bit of a problem actually in my own home and I needed to stop putting my money away my mouth is so when they were smaller we would sit down at dinner table and so so what have you done that is great today Uh, as in who have you given to you know um and and who have you had an interesting conversation with and and you know what exercise have you done what did you learn yeah absolutely and you know how have you taken yourself out of your comfort zone and um and we did the the ted talk then the tedx talk 
on that, um, which is really exciting. And actually, I, I, when I watched the video, I think I could have just stepped back and let Rosie do it all. Positive mental well-being is about lifestyle choices. Claire, how did you come to do your MH5 a day? Tell us about that. You can understand doing it with my own family, but you went much bigger. Basically, in the build-up to Christmas, um, you know, there's always this talk about giving and it's about volunteering and thinking about people less fortunate than yourself. That always seems to be like a theme in schools. Um, so I rolled out the great values, if, um, the five great values of five weeks in the build-up to Christmas um, now in both schools with the year sevens. And um, it really has taken off with the 11-year-olds. Um, the parents are really keen um, to do it. And we give them a list of activities to do of five weeks of G activities, R-E-A-T, five weeks of activities. They've got a table. And then together with their families, they've got to try and do as many of them as possible. And for each activity they do, it gets signed off by the parent. They get house points. And then they, those house points all go towards some kind of reward, either for the class or for themselves back at school. Um, but the best part is seeing the parents, sending in the photographs, you know, tweeting out what they're doing um, with their family. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just about working on that, that, those NHS concepts of notice and, um, you know, exercise and um, and uh, keep learning, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the good thing is, since Rosie's done it for the primary schools, I know a lot of primary schools are now running it in their schools. It works well, particularly with the the younger children, 11 years and younger. And do you think, so it sounds like a combination of um, a treasure hunt or orienteering that you engage the family and there's challenge and there's competition and... And creativity as well. Yes, absolutely. So the list of activities, you know, the, the G can be something as simple as, um, you know, uh, g- give up time for a member of family over the weekend for something that's important to them. You know, so how, how, how can I help you do what is really important to you? Uh, it could be, you know, cooking a meal for people, uh, giving a hug, giving a compliment, you know. Um, I, I have a list. We created a list for the kids, but we created another list just for the parents. And I have to say the parents really enjoyed that one. So it's about saying to the parents, you know, uh, relate, for example, in the column relate. Um, so try and make time for each of your children or one hour where you just spend an hour with them on their own. Um, so really trying to, because I know what it's like, you know, just sometimes we're present as parents but we're not really present yeah um really connecting and and you have to work at it it's not something that just comes in and and i i know that i'm i'm a i'm a ticklist person i've got my little checklist Um, and i think a lot of us are as working parents and it always works quite well for me oh now i must spend an hour with the other child and actually i I know it sounds a little bit formal and and maybe trite but actually it it, working like this and signing it off um it means it happens it's really simple things making a point in our family this is our aim at six o'clock after dinner we all come off the digitals so digitals are switched off everything has to be charged in the office here so no one has any digitals in their bedrooms 
and it's it's called like Heartbreak Hotel because it's like you know oh there's my phone it's like this traumatic thing I'm not going to be in contact with my my family. Um, I'm, and, I'm and, so and, glad you said it's Heartbreak Hotel because I was thinking like oh my word this is Olympic level self control by this family how do they how do they do it they're just also paragons of virtue so I'm really I'm actually pleased that you sound more like the average family that's struggling. Well, well, the irony is the person who keeps breaking the rule is me. The kids will find me <laughs> in the bathroom WhatsApping my family in South Africa. See, <laughs> and the kids will go, Mom, you're breaking the rule. Oh, that's um, lovely. Well, this is fantastic because when they do see me, you know, because as, you know, as, as, as educators, we, we, you know, there's always something, something we feel like we need to be doing. And if they do see me, at sort of at eight o'clock going on to the digitals, I go, Mom, we agreed. And I love the fact they hold me to account. Yeah. They're like, come on. You know, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Actually, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to get out. That's so lovely. And, and you've had good feedback from parents who've been doing this as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this, each time we've done it, we've had really good feedback from parents. I mean, th- there is one little little problem there is that not every child has that privilege of a family that they can do it with um, or a or parents who are willing to do it. Or and caregivers, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is something I am trying to actually review is how not to add alienate you know, because it's called hashtag family mental health father day or hashtag great values about doing it with your family. And um, so I have started to rephrase and said, you could do this with your friends. You could do this with any adult that you trust and feel safe with. Um, so just, just rewording so we don't alienate some families and children. That's lovely. We often talk about whole school well-being as being both taught in the sense of curricula and caught, you know, how we relate to each other, the messages and assemblies, the kind yeah. of thing you've done with the mental health five a day. So in your current school, are you using a whole school approach? And if you are, what kind of features are most important right now? So the whole school approach is the first thing is um, three things happening here. There's one where the children need to be able to self-refer. And that is student-led, and that's what hashtag Wellbeing Squares at lunchtimes. Mm-hmm. Student Wellbeing Ambassadors being overseen by the mental health first aid leaders who are staff. Then the second one is referral. So training each staff member, and that's including canteen staff and site staff, all staff, you know, supports on the signs to look out for when you see something of concern, um, looking at longevity and impact particularly what our referral procedures are, um, but not just to refer. Actually, you have that conversation. You've spotted something of concern. You've probably already gotten a relationship with that child. So how to hold that first conversation, whether it's a five-minute conversation or a 15 or a 50-minute conversation, mm-hmm. and how to close it and then leave it open so that there's an opportunity to come back. And then the third little phase I have, which is in our actual lessons, how do we roll it out in what we call PSHE over here, um, which is and that's looking at personal and social health education. Yes, absolutely. And and this one, because I'm quite new to my new school, I'm just rolling this one out now. And um, so last year was particularly about setting up that self referral and referral structures. Now I've been looking at 
the um, curriculum and how to teach it. And one of the problems all schools face is a lot of teachers don't feel comfortable teaching it because they say, I'm not an expert, you know, I'm a math expert, I'm a science expert. This is not my area of specialism. I don't feel comfortable teaching this. But because our schools are so large, you can't just have one teacher teaching it because there's a 1,000 kids in the school. So you need all staff to come to the party on this one. Um, so it's kind of how to get around that. And I've seen it done very badly where it's almost doing more damage than good. And we don't want to go down that route. So one of the things I've been trialing out this year, I mean, there are in England, we've got some great lesson plans. There's an organization called the PSHE Association. And in my book, I talk about loads of websites you can go to to get excellent mental health lessons, which we'll be looking at the different mental health illnesses and what does it mean to be mentally healthy and what is mental health. Is I've been working with the students and another colleague for this last year on creating their own podcasts. So we find the subject matter, and then which is in our curriculum, and then we research it with these kids, and then they find a staff member to interview, and then they interview the staff member, and then that podcast becomes the catalyst for the mental health lesson. That's gorgeous. I really yeah, like the, this. And the podcast is only eight minutes long, so it's a hook. It cannot be more than eight minutes long. So it's a hook, five key questions that we feel by the end of the lesson we really want the students to know about, uh, about this particular subject. And so they, they then interview a staff member or somebody from the community, and then there is a short uh, discussion around that particular podcast. And then there'll be a follow-up lesson, which will be a media stimulus. So we'll take, so let's say we're taking the idea of relationships. The actual podcast was about coming from a broken home and the, you know, just the pain and the self-blame and the blame and all of that. And somebody will share their personal story in the podcast. Then the follow-up lesson will be looking at this whole concept of what is a healthy relationship, what is an unhealthy relationship, what are the signs of a healthy relationship, what are the signs of an unhealthy relationship, um, what can the students do if they feel they're in an unhealthy relationship? You know, how can they take charge of that situation, but also who can they talk to? And that will often be like a little video stimulus or a case study we'll look at or maybe maybe an image, just an image that will then trigger. So we, so we basically just expand the topic a bit more. It's so exciting. This is possibly one of the most creative, interesting and empowering curricula that I've heard about. Good. Thank you. It came about because staff don't like to teach it and we have quite high staff turnover so I was like mm, how can we get around it that we've got quality instruction that is consistently delivered and we need to embrace technology and the power of podcasts is beautiful because it's recorded it's there it's in you know it's it's got longevity you've got the quality there all the teacher has to do is introduce the topic play the podcast and then the questions are all around the information in the podcast. So they just have to be a mediator or chair the conversation. And, and also I'm doing an inset this year on how to hold that safe classroom space. So to encourage children to, 
to speak. Yeah. Um, if something is said that's really offensive or politically incorrect, not to completely shut it down. You know, you hear that the person's trying to articulate something they they want to say and, you know, encourage the conversation. Tell me, in terms of these podcasts, what are some of your favorite topics that you make in the podcasts on? We've got areas on citizenship, which will cover everything from being a good citizen to actually finances. We've got uh, statutory uh, criteria for relationships, sex and education, and also now for mental health, what is emotion, um, what is resilience, what is mental health, what are the different mental health illnesses that challenges people use sometimes and then obviously that whole concept of just being physically healthy as well the favorite ones we've done a wonderful interview with the head teacher on resilience what is resilience we've done another fantastic interview with another staff member on character virtues what are the characteristics that we as human beings should aim to adopt and develop and what are really important another one was fantastic we did with the drama teacher on what is homophobia biphobia transphobia why are people homophobic what can we do about it another fantastic one coming up is we're going to be working with the person who runs duke of edinburgh on that whole concept of volunteering and doing work with the community but i have to say something what I'm loving about these podcasts because I'm obviously there with the kids because the kids do the interviews and I'm recording it. It's the anecdotes that are coming out. The staff are sharing human stories. Staff have been in tears. I mean, there's one particular staff member who does the whole session on grief and on dealing with grief, and she lost her baby. And it's just beautiful the the sharings that are happening in these little eight minutes and i just know the children in the classroom are going to be hooked they're going to be transfixed and it's more than that it's the the staff are revealing themselves as people as humans in a way that the students are going to be enabled to build connection it's really funky. It's the idea that you get to use a podcast as a medium that allows students to build relationship with teachers who mightn't even be in the room. Yes, and, yes. And I think it's, it's a beautiful way of, if you like, humanizing teachers as relatable people who, have, who care about stuff and have challenge as well. At scale. Yes, absolutely. It's very exciting. And there are a couple of podcasts where the children have chosen not to interview an adult and they've just wanted to chat about the the topic themselves. That's been really lovely as well because um, they're taking the challenge of really discussing something in depth and uh, debating something and, you know, committing to some various, you know, important topics. That's gorgeous. And so the feedback so far in this school and the last school from students, what's it been like and teachers? Well, it's been phenomenal. The students love it. They have absolutely, in the previous school, they absolutely love the wellbeing zone. We rolled out mindfulness, uh, grounded breathing mindfulness with all the year eights, 240 year eights, which is actually 12 year olds. And unfortunately, I left after that. But, oh, they they were saying, Miss, Miss, remember, we've got to start the lesson with our mindfulness or, you know, or 
Miss, can we end the lesson with our, our grounded breathing mindfulness? They could feel the difference around the school. They could feel the difference in the classrooms. And they just really appreciated the focus. In my previous school, we had, when you were referred, there was actually a mental health first Ada, who was able to do one-to-ones with the students, and she was getting very positive results from that as well, which is brilliant. Great. In my current school, we've also rolled out an app. I don't know if you know about that. No, tell us about the app. So, So it's an app, which again, the students have been involved in. So as you can hear, I'm a media studies teacher. I like to work with tech, but I always like to make it part of my work as well. And um, and I, I said to the kids, come on, we're going to build an app. And I said, Miss, do you know how to build an app? And I said, no, but we're going to we're gonna do what we always do. We're going to outsource to people who do know, but we know what the content's going to be. And I said, it's going to be a, a mental health and well-being app, but you're going to decide on the content. And anyway, uh, so Brighton Hill Teen Mind is out there, and it won the BET Award which is a national award for impact education. And in it is this app. Uh, so it's got the school logo on, Brighton Hill, uh, Teen Mind, and it's called My Mind, My Body, My Relationships. And then these podcasts that I've created, it's going to become my world. These podcasts are going to go onto the app. So even if the kids aren't at school, they can be listening to the podcasts at home. And in my mind is depression, is stress, anxiety, panic attacks. In my body, it'll be like uh, sexual orientation, um, puberty, um, sex and consent. And my relationships is what is a healthy relationship, what is an unhealthy relationship, what is bullying, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really bite-sized information. And the kids have all got this on their phones and the staff now and the parents. So if anybody wants to have that conversation and they don't have the language to use it, just get the app out and use the app as your launch pad to have that conversation. I love that idea that I'm about to have a tricky conversation and an app helps me start it. An app helps you start it. Parents have particularly responded well to this one because you're picking up signs that your child might be starting to self-harm. You just don't have the words. Um, But there's a section in my mind called self-harm, and it says, what is self-harm? And there's a short definition. And then what are the signs of self-harm? And then what are the different types of self-harm? And then who do you go to if you are self-harming or if you see someone else self-harming? Who do you go to in the school and who do you go to in the community? And there's always hyperlinks at the bottom of regulated sites that we've looked at and said, these are good sites to go to for extra reading. Oh, I have to say, Claire, we are cheering you on from New Zealand. This is so inspiring. <laughs> dynamo making things happen honestly thank you it has been inspiring what's the one thing that you'd like to see parents or teachers doing that you think would make the biggest difference to young people's resilience and well-being i think i'd like to see us before they even start school realizing that the mental well-being of a young person is as important as their achievements at, at school it's not all about their, their sporting achievements and about their academic achievements. Really, I mean, how is that young individual? And having that conversation and listening and modeling 
you as a parent and as a teacher actually modeling balance yourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about not bringing work home and life work balance. You know, we need to model that. And I think one of the things I have a little bit of a problem with is homework. You know, the kids are at school for eight hours, you know, if they do extracurricular. And then we give them like an hour and a half of homework to do. And I think, no, we need to recognize actually home is now we're at a time where we spend time with the family. We spend time, you know, nourishing and looking after ourselves and connecting with our community. So I'd like to see um, all of us uh, working harder at modeling. Uh, uh, balance what does mental well-being look like great thank you and now if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being for everybody what would it be that's a huge question (laughs) i know (laughs) i think i would like every school that on first day back we talk about ourselves actually and we talk about how are we and where are we at and how are we feeling and how are we in relation to our family and actually we just all connect with each other a little bit more you know it's the same day first day back with with the kids let's just connect let's listen to each other let's meet each other let's care about each other let's take time to talk to each other and then on the second day Let's start work and school. I just think we come off too quickly. It's all about work and grades and work and grades and work and grades. And we forget the human being that's behind it all. And actually, let's start with the human being. Let's I start there. It's so practical and doable. It's so practical. Yeah. And it's just, a, it's just about rejigging the focus, shifting mm. it to this culture yeah. of mental well-being. That's Dr. Sue Roffey speaks so well about. What's your go-to strategy that boosts your well-being when you get frustrated or down? For me, it's exercise, exercise, exercise and mindfulness, you know. So it's, it's being really active and then being really still. Three things that I'm grateful for. And just just to really work on my gratitude because it's so easy to fall into the oh, woe me trap. And um, that's my go-to. Oh, Claire, it has been an absolute delight and a pleasure. And I know people will be so excited to hear the creativity and the student involvement and student voice in the work that you're doing. It really has made it all come alive for me. And I loved your book. So thank you very, very much for sharing this time with us. Take care. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their wellbeing and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz. Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of Primo local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on RFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.